Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and my guest today is Amy Tector, author of The Honeybee Emeralds. In the book, Alice Amadi discovers a famed emerald necklace while interning at a struggling Parisian magazine and is plunged into a glittering world of diamonds and emeralds, courtesans and spies, and the long-buried secrets surrounding the necklace and its glamorous former owners. Bookless set of the Honeybee Emeralds, debut novelist Tector captures European life and her characters beautifully as she interweaves the perspectives of four women seeking fulfillment and success in this satisfying adventure. Keep an eye on this author. Amy Tector was born and raised in the rolling hills of Quebec's eastern townships. She has worked in archives for the past 20 years and has found some pretty amazing things including lost letters, mysterious notes, and even a whale's ear. Amy spent many years as an expat living in Brussels and in The Hague, where she worked for the International Criminal Tribunal for War Crimes in Yugoslavia. She lives in Ottawa, Canada with her daughter, dog, and husband. Amy, welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm so looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, this book swept me away to Paris, which I loved, and um, getting to the bottom of this historical mystery at the center of it um, was just fascinating. So um, I would love to hear from you, for listeners that haven't read it yet, a bit about the Honeybee Emeralds. Yeah, uh, well, I think I I really love the verb swept, (laughs) because that's what I was trying to do with this story. Uh, I, I wrote it really at a time before the pandemic, actually, but um, at a time when I was missing traveling because just life circumstances meant that I couldn't. And so I really wanted to conjure up Paris and and uh, and France and sort of all the fun, the, the best parts about uh, about living somewhere else in a foreign country. And so the story is, as you said, it's a it's a it's a mystery, a lighthearted mystery. And it's really um, focused on um, this beautiful, mysterious necklace that's discovered, uh, and these four disparate women have to figure out wh- where the necklace came from uh, in order to to write a story that'll save save this struggling magazine. And um, and so they have to they have to go on various adventures where they you know uh, go to the archives and the beautiful Richelieu Library, and they have to go to a vineyard in the Loire Valley and they have to go to very expensive jewelers and and kind of investigate and, and in, in that way I'm able to take the reader on this journey as well and we can all kind of experience this sort of fun glamorous life um, as this as this historical story kind of unfolds about where the neck who owned the necklace and and how it's moved from person to person and how it ended up where it did uh, in the end. I love the way you capture all of those settings and I do want to get into that in a bit. I'm wondering first, kind of how the mystery part of this book came to you and what the process of bringing that to life was like, because I, it's definitely a page turner in that sense. And I I loved seeing all the different women the necklace is connected to. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the inspiration for the mystery and, and how you kind of constructed all of that. Yeah, well, the, I knew I wanted to write a mystery, partly because I love a story that has something, has a mystery. It doesn't have to be a murder mystery, but some sort of, you know, puzzle that needs to be unraveled. Those are the books that I that I really gravitate to. So I knew I wanted to do that, but I didn't. I didn't want to write a crime story, um, mostly because I didn't want to have to do the research into figuring out how how 
Parisian <laughs> police systems worked. It just seemed very hard. So I thought, oh, I will, I'll keep it, I'll keep it non-criminal, and then that way I can, I can explore other areas. And so, um, I, as you said in the intro, I'm an archivist and have been for many years. So I know there are so many sort of mysteries and hidden secrets in archives that I thought, oh, a historical something from the past is a is a is something I'm really interested in and I think is interesting to 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 readers as well. So in my head I was sort of thinking a little bit of AS by its possession, uh, which has always been a favorite book of mine and I, I don't <laughs> I don't claim to sort of have all the literary um, greatness of by its writing, but that was in the back of my mind, that sort of excitement of discovering another historical piece of evidence here or there that that leads you further along and exposes the secret a little bit more. Um, and so that's that's really how the how the mystery evolved. And then it was very natural and easy for me to incorporate um, that archival research element and that historical element, um, because um, that's something I'm just I, I have been familiar with for a long time. It's so funny to me that you just mentioned that possession book. I have not read it but you're the second person in two days that has told me I should, well, has, has brought it up. Um, I'm also writing historical fiction in a class yesterday. Someone brought up that book as like a great example that I should, that I should look at. So that's so funny. I'll have to, I'll have to take a look at that, but well, I'm so curious being a librarian as well Mm. about your um, work in the archives. And I know you've kind of had some interesting experiences and discovered some strange things. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. The one in my bio about the whale's ear always captures people. (laughs) And I I feel a little bit bad because I did, it was actually a colleague who made the discovery, but I've, uh, but I was there. So um, she was, uh, she was looking through some records that we had received from a, from a private donor who was from, um, the Maritimes, the eastern part of Canada, and um, and she was going through the box, and there was um, uh, there was an envelope, and inside was and on the back on the outside of the envelope, it was scrawled "Whales Ear." And so, as soon as she saw that, she kind of came and got me, and we went and had a look in the processing room at what she, what it was, and she carefully opened it up, and sure enough, there was just three or four kind of one inch long bones at that point, with little bits of cartilage still attached, and who knew that whales had ears, but of course, obviously they do. And for whatever reason, this person who wasn't associated with the fisheries in any way <laughs> had come across a whale's ear and then decided to donate it to Canada's National Archives. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so that was one, you know, and uh, which was kind of made us chuckle and, and it was a good story. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, lo- there's kind of a magic in archives when because it's the unpublished, unlike what the library, where where it's the books that have been published and created on purpose um, for a reason that, and they're meant to be viewed and seen. That's the whole reason for them. Archives are are what's created that doesn't get published and was in fact never meant to be published. And so there's a lot of kind of inadvertent stories in there that, that you have to work a little harder at to find because they're not... Um, Nobody's creating their archives with a view to telling the story of their life. But when you when you acquire someone's archives and start looking at them, you see, you know, through the emails that they write now and the the postcards that they've received and the photographs that they've taken, you can patch together a life and see a story there that 
that isn't a, a designed one. Like it's not the it's not the story that people want to present to the world. It's sort of it's what's accumulated about their life. So it's it gives you a different insight, and I think that's why it's why archives are often so fascinating to people. Is that sort of what sparked your writing journey? Kind of um, those different mysteries and bits of story kind of pulling at you or had you always um, wanted to write? I had always wanted to write. I was a huge reader as a kid. I was a massive fan of my little local library. I, as, as you said, I grew up in Quebec's Eastern Townships, which is a, a funny little part of North America because, of course, Quebec is Francophone, but the townships has a has quite a, a historic English-speaking population. Um, so we're like a <laughs> tiny little minority within a larger Francophone minority within North America within, of course, the massive... North American English speaking <laughs> minority. But there, so there's kind of some interesting politics and things there. But so my little local library had a tiny section of English um, language books. And I read all of them. Like literally, I read every single English kids' book in that library to the point where my parents begged the librarians to allow me to then take out the the books for um, for adults, uh, which was which was great, although sometimes a bit confusing because I did take <laughs> out some like Jilly Coopers and uh, Jackie Collinses that <laughs> eye opening to my twelve year old self. But anyway, um, so I was always 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 a reader, and then with that, almost you know in tandem was this idea that I could also I should try to write these stories. So I was always writing stories. Um, uh, so the, the, the reading and the writing really went hand in hand for me. And then eventually when I, when I ended up working in archives, I, as soon as I walked through the doors, I was like, oh boy, there's a lot of material here that, you know, it's an endless supply of stories within these walls. So, yeah, it's an interesting, um, place to be when you have the lens of a writer, I would imagine. Um, well, you know, in terms of the honeybee emeralds, I would love first to hear a little bit about um, how you brought the setting to life. And I know you're kind of drawing on expat experience. Had you spent a fair amount of time in Paris? Did you have like photographs and different things to kind of help you bring that back to life? Or did you take a lot of trips back there? What, what was that like? Um, yeah, I was lucky enough to have lived two stints in Europe. So I spent almost three years in Brussels um, when my husband was working there. Uh, and then I spent uh, a year in The Hague when I was working for the United Nations. Um, and so both times when we were living in Europe, Paris was sort of like our go to, you know, an hour train journey very easy and we were in that city so we spent a lot of time in Paris for sure and so that you know informed my informed the writing of Honey the Emeralds because I love that city so much it's such an incredible fascinating historic cultural gastronomical <laughs> place that um, you know it's always so exciting to write about it so I a lot of this a lot of the places are places that I was familiar with that I wrote about. And then, yeah, when I was writing it, there was always, you know, the internet was always open and I was always clicking through. There's so much, I mean, the world loves Paris. And so there's, there's, yeah. there's so much material there to, to draw upon of, you know, blogs of people who were living there. Cause it was a few years since I had been to the city. So I wanted to make sure I was up to date and, you know, all the, you know, 
uh, Instagram was incredible, incredible resource. And then lots of books. So, so many novels are set in Paris. So I, so I immersed myself in the city while I was writing it, which was almost as good as going there. <laughs> yeah, uh, to be at our train ride from train ride from Paris sounds heavenly. That's so wonderful. Um, what was the what was um, kind of your expat experience like working in archives? Um, and I was particularly interested in hearing about some of your work at the Hague. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, it was. Um, it was it was wonderful and eye opening. So we we moved to the Hague and um, for a for a contract with that I that I got with the United Nations at, at the at that criminal tribunal for Yugoslavia, and they were just setting up um, they were setting up an archive. So <coughs> excuse me. Um, uh, after the after that war in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia, um, there was a uh, the, there were war, war crimes that were committed. I'm sure they're already thinking about what they'll do for Ukraine. There's things in the works already for, in, for Syria. Like this is a common thing that happens is after a conflict, you, you want to hold perpetrators to account. And so by the time I got to The Hague, this particular tribunal that was focused on the former Yugoslavia was winding down. And what they had realized was that, holy cow, we've got a ton of material that's fascinating and important to the historical record and to understanding the conflict and to understanding Europe and to understanding, you know, and to ensuring that we remember these events and what occurred and what do we do with it. And so they had realized, the organization had realized they needed to set up an archive. They needed to preserve this material and make as much of it available as possible. And so I went in sort of on the ground floor of the beginnings of how to set up an archives. And, and the thing about an archives is it, it really to, to really be an archives, it has to be open to the public as much as possible. So that was the part that was really tricky because I mean, it was, you can imagine that, um, witnesses' testimony of the things that had happened to them during this horrific and brutal conflict are, are highly personal and very sensitive. Uh, and so it was how to make as much of the material as possible available to researchers and, and historians and people who and victims and survivors. Um, you want to make as much as available as possible while also protecting identity and, and being sensitive to all of the issues. So um, it was a really, it was this amazing, <laughs> heart-wrenching year of you know, trying like this exciting program that I believed in so much, but also the material itself is so dark and, and, you know, we're seeing it again in the Ukraine, like just so brutal, but, but uh, so necessary to make it uh, known and available to people. Was it sort of a, cause I, I feel this way sometimes writing, was it sort of a deliberate choice to make the kind of expat life a little bit lighter in the honeybee emeralds and having it kind of revolve around this literary magazine or, or this, uh, sorry, this expat magazine. And did that like sort of, where did that idea come from to kind of be centering it that way? Yeah, I, it was deliberate. I did. I wanted something. I wanted something that was a little bit escapist and a little bit aspirational, a little bit more fun. Um, and I, I mean, I wrote it before the pandemic, but I, and I was very, I'm very happy with it because I think, I think we do need to reckon with the pandemic and with everything 
yeah, <laughs> everything that's going on in the world every day that's so challenging and we, we can't ignore that. But I do think there is a place as well to sort of sink into a book for an hour and recharge and maybe not be confronted with, with you know, all of the really brutal stuff um, that is out there. And so, yeah, I, 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 I was, I, that's how I saw the book is, is as a bit of a, a respite from the world. Oh yeah, that definitely. Some of the some of the issues and and some of the stuff, but maybe with a with a, def, a lighter tone, maybe. Yeah, that I definitely feel that, and this book did feel like an escape. And yeah, I think when you're writing too, it's sort of you're going to have to inhabit that world for so long. I think it's it must be so difficult to um, pick a topic that is so dark and heavy. Although I know I know many writers do. I don't think that I could. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought it was interesting to see, you know, the characters, you know, going around Paris and in the surrounding areas to try to solve this. And it kind of got me wondering, did you have a really strong kind of plotted outline at the beginning where you knew all how this was going to go and how they were each going to react? Or are you more of a pantser and the book kind of unfolded as you got to know the characters in there um, and kind of where you wanted the, the mystery and their experiences to go? Um, yeah, there, there was no outline. I am, I am a 100% pantser <laughs> in my writing, which I, I keep trying, you know, I keep reading books and being like, okay, this time outline before, cause it's, it's less, it's more um, economical to do it that way. But I, my personality rebels against it. So um, every book I've, I have written has been, I just start writing usually with it. Like for this one, I knew I wanted to have a historical mystery and I knew that I wanted it to be set in Paris, but I didn't know that there were going to be four characters, four point of view characters that just, these women kept popping up and I kept adding them in. So the original story was around Lily, who's the magazine um, editor, but three other women showed up with stories to tell. So they got in there too. And, you know, I knew that it was going to be a historical focus um, around and I had settled on a piece of jewelry. And then once I had that, I then had to do the research into the historic women who feature um, in the story as well. Um, and so that was just, um, you know, I started to do research on that on a particular time period. And then Marguerite Belanger, who's the first woman who owns the necklace, struck me as this really interesting uh, historic personage who was this very, you know, pull herself up from the bootstraps, the, the a washerwoman from rural Quebec, rural France who ends up in Paris Um uh, you know, that was a great story. So I, so I incorporated her and then, and, and so on with the others. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> I don't have an outline. And then I'm like, Oh, what's happening now? And often uh, in dialogue things that my characters are talking to each other. And then one character will say something and I'll be like, Oh, this person's, you know, <laughs> a perfumer. And, <laughs> and then that's how that, that evolves. It's not efficient, though. It it means that I spend a lot of time not knowing where my story is going and feeling very uh, nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a lot about revision lately, and it, so that makes me wonder what your revision process is like once you've kind of gotten to know the characters in your story in maybe your first draft. 
Yeah, I um I've just finished Matt, I think Matt Bell's uh Yes. Book. I, yeah. Yeah, Which, I just had him on. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah I haven't yeah, aired it yet, I mean, but yeah. <laughs> so many because he kind of writes for a pantser, which I appreciated. Yes. Um but that by the end of the, his book, I was stressed out because <laughs> it's too I can't I can't have strictures on me. I have to just, <laughs> it was we had too many rules for, for me personally. I think it's an excellent book, but anyway, so, but the thing that I really rely on is that I have been in the same writing critique group for 20 years. Oh, wow. um, and so my first, when I've written my first draft, I fire it off to these three people who have read all of my work for the past 20 years and they, you know, rip it apart in a way that is so uh, helpful and creative, creatively satisfying. And we know each other now we've known each other for so long that there's so much trust there that we just, we don't sort of bother with the niceties. We just get to the meat of the thing, which uh, I super appreciate. And so they, they are my first set of eyes and they will, they'll point out all of my big, um, often character problems where my characters are being inconsistent and, and plot as well. Um, and then that, and then I'll do a big second revision from there. Um, and then, and then after that, the book should be in good enough shape to share with some beta readers and, and then start kind of fine tuning and making sure that my pacing is on. And then I, then I start paying more attention to like, you know, are there, are there sections or chapters or scenes that are lagging? Do I need all of the scenes? Um, I do like to be kind of ruthless and then start cutting because uh, I think a leaner book is a better book. So so by the end, the book is often, um, you know, 20% shorter than it was in the first draft. Yeah. Um, when I take out all of the that's and nodded his heads and shrugged his <laughs> shoulders too, that's helpful. Um. I think it's so interesting that you have had the same writing critique group for so long. And I've also been thinking about critique groups lately. And I'm just wondering from your experience, what do you think makes a, um, an effective critique group and have you all kind of learned any tips or tricks along the way for sort of making it the most helpful for people? Yeah. Um, the, the value I think in the critique group is if you can be open to the critique. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there isn't a value in the three or four or five other people in your group all saying, this story is amazing. You've got it. You've nailed it. It's perfect. That actually isn't valuable because you haven't nailed it. And you, even when your book is published, it's not you haven't nailed it, right? You can always make it better. And so the whole point of having the critique group is to be critiqued. And But it's so hard. <laughs> you know as a writer like it's so precious to you and especially at the beginning it's and and you know there are parts literally parts of your own life that you've written in there or like a you know a personality trait you've given a character that you think you have and now these people are telling you how annoying that character is very personally devastating and so I think the biggest thing is to to try to go in with the mindset of this is going to be helpful. And if three people in your group hate something, that's actually super useful. That's better than only one person hating it because then you know you haven't quite got it. And it's mm-hmm. and it's actually an opportunity to then go back and think through how you can make it better. And the, But it's hard to get to that place. And everybody in the group has to get to that place because if one person is getting super defensive and angry about 
I mean, you have to phrase your critiques in a positive and constructive way, but then the people have to be receptive to have that mindset. And it's, I don't think you know that until you're in it. So that's super helpful. It, it's hard to get there. Yeah. But yeah. It's worth and, it. and do you, um, do the writers who have kind of been the most helpful to you on your journey, do you all write very different things or are you in a similar space? We all write very different things, which is so one guy uh, writes fantasy and sci-fi, which I do not read. I, what I know about fantasy and sci-fi is through reading um, reading his work over the past 20 years. And I, <laughs> another person writes sort of more gritty kind of family dramas with, you know, um, you know, just grittier stories than I do. And then someone else writes more sort of uh, mystical kind of historical stuff. Um but that's that's fine. It doesn't at, le- at least for us, it hasn't mattered because at one point I was I like way twenty years ago I was like I'm going to write a Harlequin. Those will be easy, and I'll write one and I'll get it published and I'll be a Harlequin romance writer. And so this group had to read my very badly written <laughs> <laughs> attempt at a Harlequin romance, and none of them right like that's that's the that's the kind of genre that lots of people can eye roll at, but none of them were like eye rolling they knew what the genre was enough to be like okay like it's they're gonna there's gonna be a happily ever after and we need to get there and so how can Amy's characters get there in a realistic way and I it was much I mean Harlequins are hard to write so (laughs) it wasn't possible in that one which is which is fine it was a great learning experience but but they but we all are we you just have to accept what the genre is what the type of writing is and then work to kind of as much as within your knowledge say yeah, you know, this is working or this isn't because for instance, when the guy who writes the fantasy, he does a ton of world building, right? Like he has to set up what the magic rules are and what the, where the wizards are and what the geography is and who the, what the jobs are and everything. And so we can say, even though none of us actually read fantasy, we can say, this is just really dragging. Like you're giving us too much. You're dumping that too quickly. And then that's helpful to him, even though we can't. So as readers, we, we know what should happen. So I, so I think it is, it, it is, you, it's can still work even if you're not all in the same writing genre. Yeah. And I would imagine that kind of, um, I don't know, it must, I, I, I like the idea of having different um, genres that you're kind of critiquing and I'm sure you pick up on different things that then maybe um, help you in your own writing as well. Um, well, one of the things I, I wanted to hear about, I know that you are, um, kind of reissuing a, a book of yours that you had written and you have a, a three book deal, I think. Could you tell us kind of what's coming up next for you? Yeah, it's not a reissue. It's just a, it's just a first publication of a book that I did write a number of years ago. So, um, and it's the first in, in a three book series of um, murder mysteries set in, set in um, the archives. So they're all, it's different characters, um, but, but always uh, set around this, the same, um, the same archives. And so in the first one, uh, which is coming out this fall is called the foulest things. And it, uh, it's not too much of a spoiler because it happens right at the beginning, but, you know, a young archivist finds a dead body squished in the stacks and so <laughs> unravel the mystery there. Um, so that's the, that's the first one. And then there'll be two more in that series coming out <clears throat> over the next uh, sort of year and a half. Oh, that's so exciting. Congratulations. Wow. So was it, um, oh, I see. So it was a, it was a finalist for the first one was a finalist for a book award, but it hadn't actually been published yet. 
That's right. Yeah. I see. Okay. Oh, that's so exciting. Um, well, I always love to kind of end by hearing what authors have been reading lately. Is there anything you would want to recommend to listeners? Oh, for sure. I mean, like I said, I'm still a reader. <laughs> so I've, got, I've got a lot on the go. Um, Ways the World Could End is this fantastic new book from Kim Hooper. Um, and it's the story of uh, a father on the autism spectrum who suddenly has to raise his sort of grumpy, angry 15-year-old daughter um, when the when the mother leaves the picture. And um I don't know. It's just, it's very funny and very insightful. Um, and like, I just a real uh, joyous read, I would say. I really enjoyed it. And then on the other end of the spectrum is, um, maybe not the other end of the spectrum, but I'm also, you know, halfway through um, this great book by Rachel Yoder, which came out last year, Night Bitch, uh, which is the story of a woman, like a frazzled stay-at-home mother, who um, whose husband is always traveling for business and who finds herself turning into a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I have got to read that one. I, I, um, I just keep hearing about that. And I heard from the author at a book festival event and I have just, you know how you have a book that's been on your to be read list forever and you just don't yeah. get to it. I've got to get to that one. <laughs> well, I bought this one last summer uh, and it's been sitting on my nightstand and I finally, finally all of my library holds calmed down enough that I could <laughs> get into that one. Uh, and I've, it's making me chuckle. And it's, uh, it's just an exaggerated version of that thing, especially in the early years of child rearing where you're just, you know, you're in the thick of it and you're losing, you're losing your own self as a, as a parent to this sort of the bigger picture of child rearing. There's so many societal expectations and the absurdity of then her turning into a dog. It's just like, she takes it to the next step and it's, it's I'm really enjoying it. So that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, I'll definitely link to those. And yeah, I just really hope that um, listeners who want to get swept away to Paris and really who does not want to get swept away to Paris will go pick up the Honeybee Emeralds. I hope librarians order it for their libraries. Um, It was just such a great read. It was um, a really fun book to escape into. Um, I found myself just looking forward to any bit of time I had to read um, while I um, was in the midst of this book. So um, highly recommended. And Amy, just thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Oh, this was so much fun. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, A Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports A Bookish Home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash A Bookish Home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. 
Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.